Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. David Wallace-Wells is joining me today. And David is the deputy editor and climate columnist for New York Magazine. And he wrote a book called The Uninhabitable Earth. And I can just say this book will do two things. It is bone-chillingly frightening. And it is also really inspiring. It is also extraordinarily motivating. It is a book that looks at the current trajectory that we as a species are on with respect to climate change. And it lays out some really important steps that we can begin to take and should be taking now to try to reverse what is looking more and more frightening and becoming more and more real. This conversation is really interesting. There are a few people who know more about this stuff than David, and he lays it out in a really clear and comprehensive manner. We talk a lot about complacency and how we break through complacency and move towards action, how to get away from despair and move towards progress. I, I just I found him really, really intelligent, really, really thoughtful. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you will as well. Before we get to the conversation, please check out the website, www.explorethespaceshow. Definitely check us out on Twitter, at ETS Show. You can check out our brand new Instagram page, at Explore the Space Show. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. Love to hear from people who are enjoying our content, love to hear new ideas, and always love to connect with people who are listening to Explore the Space. It's a really fun ride that we're on right now. The trajectory of the show is just incredible, and it's conversations like this that are really moving us in an interesting direction. It was a real treat to get to speak with David. You're going to really enjoy this. It's going gonna, it's gonna to light a spark. It's a motivating show, and it's a motivating show in the right way. So without further ado, David Wallace-Wells. David, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. It's great to talk to you. So this book came out in 2019, in the early part of this year. And since that time, I follow you on social media and I follow the the roller coaster ride of the uninhabitable earth. And I want to start from a place of appreciative inquiry in terms of the context of reading the book, what it's about, the interviews that you've done, the the trajectory of all of this conversation. I want to start with how are you doing? Yeah. Well, it's it's a weird thing to be sort of out there selling a book about the end of the world. Um, and, <laughs> I would you know, imagine I, I do so. Think, <laughs> I do think that it's not the book isn't quite as bleak as the as the title might suggest. The title is a bit hyperbolic, and I'm trying to um, sort of establish some, some different benchmarks that we can use to sort of better understand where we're headed. I think it's important to think about some unlikely worst case outcomes in order to really see clearly where we're where we're probably going to go. Um, and I do think the book has some sort of notes of hopefulness um, to that to it. But, you know, ultimately, people see the news on their television, read, read the news in their newspapers and see um, the changing climate outside their windows every day. And um, I think the book has been received really incredibly well. I mean, it's sold very well. It's been praised by just about everybody who's written about it and seems to be, you know, a part of both of the um, growing protest movement that we're seeing here in, in Europe and also um, even playing a role in, in the kind of political discourse with a bunch of the presidential, Democratic presidential candidates 
talking about it and it was talked about on the floor of Congress. And, you know, all of that is, as a writer, it's, it's gratifying, but it's also um, a little terrifying because it's a reflection of just how scared the world is about where we're headed. And the fact that this book, which is meant to be a kind of clear-eyed look at that science, has been so useful. It's useful because there are many, many more people now who are really focusing on the issue in some mix of panic and motivation and mobilization. Um, they are, you know, the fact that they are panicked and feeling like they need to mobilize is a reflection of just how urgent they feel the crisis is. And, you know, you can look at that both ways. It's it's good news. It's better that more people are being engaged, but it's, it's bad news. It's terrifying that we're at this point where we have so little time to act that um, urgent action is absolutely necessary, and so many more people are, are feeling that way. All of the things that you just described are the way I felt about the book and the way I felt watching the arc of the book over the last several months. One thing that I noticed, though, right, as a physician, I spend a fair amount of time sitting down with patients, whether it's in the emergency department or in their room, and I'm certainly not assuming anything is wrong, but I did notice that you did not let me know how you're doing, that has this been hard yeah. for you? Has this <laughs> been, do you feel good about where things are? Has it been a roller coaster? Do you feel like a punching bag? As the individual who is, who really sent up one of the many signal flares, but a really bright signal flare. Does it take a toll or is it exciting? Where, where does it fall on that spectrum of the individual human experience to be the person that basically lit the fire of all that stuff you just described? Well, I think, I think it's a, it's a mix of, it's a mix of things. Um, maybe starting with just the weirdness of becoming a little bit of a public figure, which I've never been before. And I think there is something a little disorienting and destabilizing about that. There are also things about that that are gratifying to the kind of worst parts of me. Like I have an ego like anybody else. And it's nice to see the work I'm doing um, have an impact on the world yeah. to some degree. Yeah. But I think the context is much more important. And that's to say that, you know, if I had been raising this alarm and seeing nothing happen as a result um, it might have been much harder to go through the process of going around, talking about it, um, being interviewed, you know, watching people respond to the book if I saw very little progress resulting. But it happens that I think it's basically by coincidence, I'm just sort of surfing this this wave of momentum on, on climate. But there is this quite dramatic wave. You know, when yeah, I turned yeah. in the book last September, I would have said to you, I didn't have all that much hope for political action in the U.S. or elsewhere. I would have said you know, our politics is quite inert on this subject. And I know all these reasons why it is why that is the case from the individual level where all of us have these kind of reflexes that push us away from contemplating really scary outcomes to our own status quo biases and our, our preference that things stay the same rather than get changed dramatically to the forces in our political arena that have um, sort of invested in inaction on climate and have captured at least, depending on how you count, at least one of the two major parties and maybe more than that, to the level of geopolitics where, you know, every nation of the world, even if they are in agreement that this is a, a real um, pressing crisis, have some individual incentive to slow walk action on climate and let the other nations of the world clean up the mess. For all those reasons, I was, you know, I was basically um, skeptical that we could make um, dramatic action, take dramatic action on this anytime soon. Um, and the fact that I was seeing so many more natural disasters accumulate, extreme weather accumulate, while we were doing nothing was really incredibly dispiriting. And that was just in September. In October, the UN released its, um, I call it like the doomsday report. It was their, their major report studying the difference between a, one, a world that was warmed 1.5 degrees and a world that was warmed 2 degrees. Now, 
for your listeners who may not understand all this, like that those we're at about one one degree now. One point five degrees is, I think, the most optimistic person on climate in the world would tell you it's a best case scenario. And I would say that about two two degrees is at this point our best case scenario. So they were studying a range of outcomes from the unbelievably improbable to the unlikely but still possible. Um, they were not even considering the range of genuinely likely outcomes, which is you know two and a half, three degrees up to where we're on track for if we don't change course this century, which is 4.3 degrees of warming. Um, and yet just in that narrow band, which is quite unlikely, extremely optimistic, um, they found so much that was scary about what would happen um, and then talked about it with such um you know, such unprecedented urgency um, with a much more alarmist rhetoric than any equivalent scientific body had ever allowed themselves to speak with before, that it really, really woke the world up. And even at the time, it wasn't quite clear to me that that was going to happen. It was striking that the report was um, presented in this new language, this new alarmist language, which I had been um, using for a few years but which I had not seen many other people in the climate world embracing. This was the most pedigreed, most credentialed, most establishment body using that same language. And the response, I think you have to say, you know, nine months later has been incredible. That's why Greta Thunberg started her climate strike, which hasn't even got been going on for a year now. And um, in Europe, every Friday, including today, hundreds of thousands of kids walk out of school to protest climate inaction. On their major event days, they have millions of um, kids across Europe walking out of school to protest. In the UK, Extinction Rebellion started, and this is um, what seemed at first like a kind of a fringe environmental movement has been so dramatically successful that they forced Parliament to declare a climate emergency. And um, the British government has now prepared a plan that will get them to zero emissions by 2050, which is probably a little slow by my, you know, by my standards, but is so much more ambitious than anything that anybody in the British government had put forward before. And in the U.S., we've had the Sunrise Movement, the, you know, the Green New Deal put forward. And that's a kind of, um, it's a statement of ambition and principle. It's not yet been spelled out exactly what those policies would mean. But as a statement of principle, again, it's so much more ambitious and um, committed to action on climate than anything we'd seen, even from the most liberal Democratic senators and congresspeople up to this point. You know, it's it sounds sort of naive, but it literally takes the UN recommendations, the UN sense of what is necessary to avoid what they call catastrophic warming, and tries to build a policy response that will get us there, rather than, as we have in the past, built a sense of what we could do and built a sense of our political goals out of what we thought was politically necessary rather than what we knew, uh, sorry, what was politically possible rather than what we knew was scientific, scientifically necessary. And that shift is just a radical, radical re- um, orientation of our priorities. And we're seeing now a kind of arms race on the Democratic Party. Um, each of the candidates for presidents tr trying to compete, outcompete each other for who's going to be most serious on climate. All of this momentum, really, I would not have believed if you had, if you had sketched it out for me just nine months ago in September. And, you know, I think you have to say, looking at the science, that the movement is still not nearly fast enough. We have, the UN says, to have our emissions by 2030, to have a decent chance of stabilizing the climate below this threshold of catastrophe. And in order to do that, they say we have to have a World War II scale mobilization um, against climate starting this year. So I think we all know like we're quite far from that now. Um, and yet we're moving so much faster than I thought was even 
conceivable um, a year ago that it's hard not to be exhilarated by that too. And that's really the context in which I see, you know, the story of the book and how it's how it's connected with readers, which is um, in this moment of incredible momentum that it is serving that purpose um, and helping that cause along. And you know, I when I when I was doing my reporting for you know the the first big piece I wrote on climate a few years ago and for the book in, in the intervening years with climate scientists, I heard a lot from people who were worried about burnout and despair, who thought that there were a lot of people um, who might be overwhelmed by the bad news from from climate. And I sort of understood that as a portrait of the climate movement, because I was speaking with people who had spent decades in this field and really saw no progress at all to show for it. And I understood in that context how it could be really hard to continue fighting. And yet, um, I said, to, first of all, I said, you know, I think it's a, like this is just a slice of the public and the, the public's problem is much more complacency than, than fatalism. But sort of even focusing on those who are most committed, the best antidote to a feeling of despair is progress. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing now. Again, it's not progress that's fast enough to really address the problem at the scale it needs to be addressed at. But it's so much more dramatic than anything that you could have imagined a year or so ago. I think that has to be you have to think of that as exciting rather than um you know, we're, we're all in a, in a bad news moment. I think that the moment is shifting and there's there's quite a bit more reason for optimism than there was even when I wrote the book. I'm so happy that the journalist who writes a book that gets the name The Uninhabitable Earth can present some discourse like you just did where, number one, we get the summary of what has happened in the last nine to 12 months that, uh, honestly, I've been craving just put this all into some context, please. But then to frame that piece that at the end that I just thought is brilliant, that the antidote for despair is progress after you've laid out where the progress is coming from. So I'm going to thank you for doing that because for me, that actually really resonated. But at the same time, I think that this is going to be an important little segment of explore the space. And I think of the work that you are going to be doing now, right? The book is out. People have bought it. People have read it. I might suggest that you get to now transition from promoting the book, here's why people should read it, to I get to now be a navigator. And it's as I was thinking about that, it's interesting because I read an interview that you gave to The Guardian, and in that article, you talk about how you're a journalist, you're not an activist. And I'm going to pause it to you that especially after what you just said, I don't think you get to make that choice anymore. I think you yeah. are in that activist group where you are going to be an accelerant of learning and engagement and progress. How does that sit with you? Well, not entirely comfortably, but not entirely uncomfortably. Okay, either. I fair. mean, I think, I think that, you know, you can't sit with this material for as long as I have and not feel motivated yes. on some level to take action. Like yes. you can't treat it just from the kind of sociopathic journalistic distance that we're, you know, someone like me has been trained to treat any story they write with. Um, and I do take that seriously. And it's, you know, it's one reason I really have thought through the question of, of rhetorical approach. You know, when I first started writing about climate, I actually came under a fair amount of criticism for being, for being an alarmist. And you certainly um, did. I, you absolutely I, did. And I said, my, you know, my first defense against that, which I, I stand by and think is legitimate, is it's not me that's being alarmist. It's the science. Um, <laughs> right. if, if, if the news is really that bleak, I think the public deserves to know. And any, um, any communi and communi communications approach that massages those facts or elides them or shrouds them in some kind of, in some way 
to protect the public, I think that's really patronizing and beyond that sort of dangerous. I think we all need to know what we're facing so that we can better prepare. But even putting aside the sort of truth claim argument, I also really did having, you know, thinking through these issues, I really did come to feel that um, there was motivating, mobilizing value in taking a much more urgent um, rhetorical approach, which is, you know, I, I actually see that vindicated enormously in the way that we were just talking about, because that UN report from last October was so much more urgent and alarmist in its rhetoric. And I think that's why we're seeing so much progress now. Almost, you, it's really like almost a single cause, like that report with that rhetorical approach has produced the climate energy that we're seeing now. And I think that's undeniable. But even pulling back from that, you know, I'm someone who was, you know, I grew up in the 90s in New York City, one of the wealthiest countries in the world at a time of national peace and prosperity and optimism. And, you know, I felt, you know, I, I felt that all of this stuff was going to be solved. Um, I thought that climate change was something that would be you know, taken care of. It was something to worry about for sure. It posed a threat, but we had this kind of system in place of technocrats and experts and um, broad-minded, you know, sort of long-view leaders who were going to take the next necessary steps to approach it. I didn't think I had to worry all that much about climate change. And I was, like many other people in the world even today, as a result, really, really complacent about um, about the issue. I, I did not understand and certainly didn't act as though climate change was an urgent, all-encompassing threat, which is really what it is. And so I know from personal experience that you can be um, awakened from complacency, which I really do think is the major problem in the world today when it comes to climate, um, from fear. I was someone who was complacent, and now I'm not. And the thing that brought me out of that complacency was fear, because I saw yeah. this science, learned how bleak it was, how scary it was, and wanted to avoid that outcome, if at all possible. But I also know that looking from looking at history, you know, when I when I look at the campaign, when Rachel Carson published Silent Spring, it was called hyperbolic and, and irresponsible alarmist. <laughs> right. that, right. that led to the elimination of DDT. It basically led to the creation of the EPA, yeah. our campaigns against nuclear proliferation, against cigarette smoking, against drunk driving. Yeah. These were all I mean, campaigns Upton Sinclair is the jungle, fear. right? That totally reformed how we process meat. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, I, I don't think that fear is the only way to talk about climate at all. I think that actually climate change is too big a story to tell in any one way. And I wouldn't oh, say we must, point. yeah, I, I wouldn't say we must insist on, you know, scaring people. Right. But I also feel like for too long, our storytelling, our advocacy and our communications about climate were so restricted because we were scared to scare people. Yeah. And that meant that nobody really understood just how big a deal this was. And, you know, just to like give a brief little picture of that, you know, I often talk about this in terms of like, I, I thought were like three big misunderstandings that I had. Um, and I think many, many people like me had the first is about speed, the speed jet. You know, I, I had sort of been led to believe, I think many of us were that this was really a slow problem that it was going to unfold over decades at the absolute fastest and probably more like centuries. You know, James Hansen who's sort of famous as the, the world's most alarmist climate scientist. The, the name of his book for a general audience is Storms of My Grandchildren. That's the timescale that he was presenting <laughs> right. as an alarmist. Right, right. right. But half of, half of all of the emissions that we've put into the atmosphere in the entire history of humanity from the burning fossil fuel have come in the last 30 years. That's right. When we That's knew this was out. a problem. When we already knew this was a problem. 
Totally. Yeah. And you yeah. Know, I'm, I'm 36 years old, which yeah. means that my lifetime contains that whole story. We brought the planet from the brink of from a stable situation to the brink of catastrophe during my lifetime. Right. The, I have memories of that stretch back. I have memories even of producing carbon emissions. Because I have memories of driving and of flying when I was younger than six years old. Since that point, we've done more damage to the future of the planet than all of the millennia of human history before. We are doing this damage very rapidly, and now we're seeing those impacts in real time. The, you know, the wildfires that you've dealt with in, in Santa Rosa and elsewhere in California. You know, I just did a piece about, Cal- about California wildfires. I talked to Eric Garcetti, the mayor of LA. He's 48 years old. The year he was born, 61,000 acres burned in California. The year he was elected mayor, 2013, it was 600,000. The year he was re-elected mayor, it was 1.2 million. And the year last year, 2018, it was 1.9 million. Um, these are trajectories that are out of control. You know, Houston has been hit by three 500-year storms in five in three years. Yeah. Um, you you just are, named the two places that I spent almost all of my time because I grew up in California. <laughs> I went to medical school in Houston, and then I came back to California. So what you just said, I feel it. And – I like to use as increments of time when I'm close to somebody in age, I like to use how many high school years are we apart. So we're about two high school classes apart because I'm a little bit older than you. And what you, I I remember those same conversations growing up. I remember that same sense of it's going to get fixed. Um, and I'm 11, so it might not be me. Um, and, and then feeling the same thing that you feel now, that sense of fear and a little bit of, I mean, that sense of, of dread for me, it was two things happen. Three things happened in rapid succession. One, the Lancet, which is a very, very important international medical journal, created Lancet Countdown, which is a specific project to look at the impact of climate change in human health. Two is I randomly found at the library and read New York 2140 by Kim Stanley Robinson. I don't know yeah. if you've ever – have you read that book? Yeah, he's great. That book is and, great. And the cover of that book is the fictional equivalent of your book. It's, it's, it's Manhattan Underwater and right. then your book. And those three things in rapid succession, that will get the hair on the back of your neck to stand up. And if it doesn't spur action, we're, we're in trouble. And the, what I'm hearing from you is that it has spurred action. Well, I think it's, it's – that to me is the natural next step, which is – you know, it's not – it is scary, right? It is really scary. The yeah. track that we're on now, four, four degrees of warming by the end of the century, you know, would cause uh, – economists estimate – $600 trillion in global damages, which is twice as much wealth as, as exists in the world today. It would mean places on the planet could get hit by six climate-driven natural disasters at once. We would have twice as much war because there's a relationship between temperature and conflict. Right. We, you know, we would have agricultural yields that are half as bountiful as they are today, trying to use them to feed 50% more people. I mean, it's really, really bleak, right? But the speed of change and the scale of those impacts combined ultimately – are a reminder of our responsibility because we are doing this damage now and they are a sign of our power over the climate because the only thing that is bringing these scenarios about, bringing them even into the realm of possibility, is what we are doing together. We are the authors of that story, which means if we get to four degrees and all those horrible impacts I just mentioned, it will be because of what we choose to do from here on out. It won't be because some something is driving the system from outside the system it will be because of how much carbon we put into the atmosphere and we have our hands on those levers now today so we can choose to put less carbon into the atmosphere we can hopefully choose in relatively short order to put zero carbon into the atmosphere but for me the natural response to just how dramatic and scary and 
all encompassing this is, is that we are in the driver's seat and um, we have all the power and there are obstacles to dramatic action, but they are human obstacles. Right. They are political obstacles, cultural obstacles, economic obstacles. They are not natural obstacles. They are not biological or ecosystem obstacles. Um, they are the only reason that we are in the situation now is because of what we are doing. And the only reason that we will find ourselves in ever hotter water in the decades ahead, which I think is likely to some degree, but just how hot that water will be is up to us. It's all up to us. And, you know, I mentioned that the speed of change, I think it's also important really just to quickly walk through these other two things. The second is the scope, which is to say, you know, I heard a lot about Arctic melt and sea level rise. And I, I felt, I think a lot of people did that. That meant that if you lived off the coasts, you were basically safe. And even if you lived on the coast, you could, you could move and you'd be okay. But the more you learn about the economic impacts, which, you know, by the end of the century could have us with a global GDP that was 30% smaller than it would be without climate change, which is an impact that's twice as deep as the Great Depression and permanent, or the agricultural yield issues that I mentioned, or the public health issues that we, you know, we haven't even talked about. But, you know, we're, we're already killing 9 million people a year through air pollution that comes from burning fossil fuels. And let's we just pause. I know you are rolling, but I, I, that is something, <laughs> right, that we, I'll ask you, I heard it, I recorded it, it's going to be in the episode, but I, it, you need to restate that number. Of the yeah. projected impact on human life that we're talking about, it, it, that is that is on the horizon. We can see it, and and we get to we get to drive whether we whether we pivot or whether we roll into it. What was that number again? So there's a um, there's a study that there's a study that I, I talk about a lot um, that looks at just the impact of just air pollution. So no other climate impacts, just between a threshold of 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees of warming. So again, these are levels that we're we're almost certain to surpass 1.5 degrees, 2, 2 degrees, I think is practically speaking our best case scenario. And the authors of this paper found that just between that, just that half degree threshold, just through the impact of air pollution, we would kill an additional 153 million additional people. Now, that is a scale of death and suffering at the level of 25 holocausts. And when I say that to people, you know, I see their eyes widen, I see their faces go ashen, and they think or they say, that's unconscionable. And that response is right. Yes. We should not conscience that amount of death and suffering. We so, should do everything we can to avoid it. So you use, yet, you use a descriptive term that I really like a moment ago, and that's the idea of we get to pull levers. And I actually use that on the podcast a lot when we're talking about different issues. Yeah. You know more about this than the vast majority of us. And whether you choose to be given the label of activist or not, I would say doesn't really matter. I'm going to ask you for some of your wisdom and your insight. If you're in the pilot seat and you have five levers in front of you to pull and, and you get to prioritize them in terms of things that we can do as individuals and as communities on the world scale, what is the first lever? you would pull? Well, in, in a kind of like global dictator scenario, I think the absolute easiest, lowest hanging fruit is to um, end fossil fuel subsidies. I think that that is, it's an argument that everyone on any point of the political spectrum should be able to agree with. According to the IMF, which is no enemy of big business in general, they've been a real friend to corporate power uh, in the world over the last few decades. According to the IMF, 
we are globally subsidizing the fossil fuel business to the tune of $5.3 trillion every year. Now, a lot of those subsidies are not direct subsidies. They have to do with the fact that we're not yet pricing carbon. We're not pricing the environmental cost of carbon into the price of carbon. But just to give you a sense of just how big that subsidy is, there are currently technologies that could suck carbon out of the atmosphere. They're called negative emissions technologies. That could They can do this at a cost of about $100 a ton of CO2. And that means that theoretically, the equation is much more complicated than this, and I'm not going to bore your listeners with the details. It's not quite this simple. But just to give a sense of context and um, scale, you could theoretically deploy these machines today to, to completely neutralize all of the carbon that we're producing in today's economy without changing a single thing. It would mean we would be adding no new carbon to the atmosphere at all. We would be able to continue just as we are it would cost about $3 trillion a year. So today, we are subsidizing the fossil fuel business almost twice as much as it would cost to completely neutralize the entire carbon impact of all of our economic and agricultural industrial transportation practices today. Um, so I think the, the absolute lowest hanging fruit is just to end those subsidies immediately. I would also, um, make, I would rather than putting that money in the bank, I would want to spend it on R&D to drive the cost of renewable energy down and especially develop new technologies in the parts of um, our economy and industry that are going to be harder and harder to decarbonize. For instance, you know, airplane travel. It's we, we have planes now that have electric planes that have flown across. I don't remember if it's the Atlantic or the Pacific, but one of the oceans. But it's just like a dinky two-seater plane. We're very, very far it's, from it's having. It's the Lindbergh flight, right? It's the spirit of St. Louis crossing yeah. the Atlantic. So then let's and, pivot you know, a little bit and let's look at in the last few minutes because we want people that listen to this to get that little charge. Can I guess at the lever that the individual should pull? Because the individual that listens to this podcast does not control what happens with fossil fuel subsidies. So can I do you mind if I just take a shot at it and you tell me if I'm right or wrong? Yeah, go for it. I'm gonna propose that the individual, Mark Shapiro, my family, my friends, my teammates and colleagues, same for you. People that listen to the, to this podcast, it's it's a two parter. One is to get informed, and then two is to vote. So two is to decide what issues are going to be your priority, and then figure out the person that is going to represent that issue the best. And for I think more and more people, climate change is going to be a big one. And as you pointed out at the top of the show, for the first time, there's real dialogue amongst political candidates in the United States around this, and it's becoming part of platforms of political parties at the state, and you know we'll see at the federal level. It's 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 going to be that. That's your lever, literally and figuratively, is to decide the candidate that's going to drive this one and 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 pull it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, I, I, this is you know I mentioned earlier. It's this is too big a story to tell in any one way. Yeah, I think it's also you know too big a story to too big a problem to solve through individual action. It has to be achieved through policy because when when you reckon with just the scale of the challenge that we're dealing with, that every aspect of modern life has a kind of carbon footprint and in order to stabilize the climate at any point, even at a hellish, say, three or four or five degrees, requires not just that we reduce our carbon emissions, but that we entirely zero them out. So that if we're at four degrees, even if we're adding just a sliver of the carbon to the atmosphere that we're adding today, we will still be heating the planet additionally. So if we want to stabilize the climate, we need to totally zero out on our carbon. And when you think about that at the level of individual sectors, you know, take, for instance, air travel. You and I can fly less 
everyone we know can fly less. Even everyone in the United States can fly less. But if you, unless you can imagine a world in which no citizen of the entire planet is taking an airplane anywhere by their own volition, then I think you understand that in order to zero out emissions from jet travel, we need policy transformation, probably some kind of public investment in new technology that will bring about a new kind of plane, but also legislation that requires that airlines fly those kinds of planes. Same for agriculture. You know, we, we hear a lot about the carbon footprint of beef, and it's true. Every time you're eating a hamburger, you're, you're you know, adding to, the, adding to the problem. But unless you, you can imagine a world in which every single one of the seven or eight billion people on the planet have voluntarily gone vegan, and I think you have to think about this in terms of, you know, in terms of policy, which is to say in terms of politics. And on that front, again, there is hope because there are studies showing that just by changing the way that cattle graze on particular land, you can turn beef from a carbon, what's called a carbon source that produces carbon to a carbon sink, which means it absorbs carbon. Um, there are small scale studies that show that if you feed cattle seaweed, just a small amount of seaweed, that their methane emissions, which is a major part of the, of the problem, could fall by 95 or 99%. Wow. And that could be something that we could very easily legislate. So everywhere you look, uh, you know, carbon is everywhere you look in modern life. It has to do with, you know, every time you turn on the light, every time you get in a car, every right. time you take a flight, every time you eat, everything you do has a carbon footprint. But each of these um, parts of the problem are also theoretically if not solvable at the moment, then addressable at the moment, and hopefully solvable in the near future. But they're so large, and especially when you t when you add them all up, the collective problem is so large that I think we have to stop thinking about it as an issue of individual consumption and behavior, and more about what m much larger scale changes we can achieve through policy. Which is to say that the most important thing that any individual can do is take part in politics. That the lowest, you know, the smallest ask there is just to vote, as you say. Yep. But there are, there are commitments beyond that to be to organize, to hold politicians accountable once they're in office, etc. But at the very basic level, going to the voting booth, you know, once a year or twice a year, however often even your local elections are happening, and just making sure that you're supporting people who prioritize action on climate, who see this as a preeminent challenge of our time, which it is, and even an all-encompassing challenge, because no matter what your political cause is, if you're worried about, you know, um, income, economic growth or income inequality, if you're worried about violence or violence against women, if you're worried about hunger and famine, you know, no matter what you're worried about politically, climate plays a role. And so we need to solve, we need to address this issue head on. Otherwise, all these other issues you may care about will get beyond the reach of our control. Yeah. Um, for all those reasons, I think really prioritizing political action and making sure that our politics reflects the urgency of this challenge, I think that's the most that any individual can do, much more important than, you know, whether they buy an electric car or take a few less um, airplane flights a year. Although, you know, if you want to live by your values and buy an electric car right. and take a few less airplane right. flights a year, you yeah. should. You got to walk the walk when you have the chance. is much more important. That's yeah. right. So there's two things that I'm putting in my backpack. One of them is the antidote to despair is progress. And the second one is for the individual, it's getting informed and learning and then using that learning to drive policy. And a big part of that is voting. And I think those two things walk hand in hand. So I will ask you, because there is so much information out there, where would you suggest people go? We're going to send them obviously to you. The book is outstanding. Where do you look? What are one or two places you like to look for news and information on the internet, on social media? What are some reliable sources that you recommend to people who say, I'm feeling motivated. The spark is lit. 
you know, the fire is going, but I, 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 I need the right source of information because right now it just feels like a tidal wave of stuff and I don't know what's good or bad. Where do you like to route people to, to learn more? Well, for, you know, kind of in the category of like journalism, I think, you know, the, the places doing the best work are um, The Guardian in the UK and in the US, um, The New York Times. I think both, both of those have been really great sources of info. I would also check out a website called Carbon Brief. Um, they do a lot of great work. You know, in terms of the sort of like, then what do you do with it? What, where do you go from there? You know, I think 350.org is a great organization. Um, I think that the Sunrise Movement um, is is um, has has done amazing work, and people should check that out too. I mean, that's mostly that's more like youth focused. I think in general, any kind of interface that you can have with local leaders um, and even you know your representatives at the state and federal level, you know, those offices have public um, public phone lines, and you know, you can go to those offices also and 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 meet those representatives yeah. and any to any extent that you can impose your sense of the urgency of the problem on those leaders um, the better off you'll be and I would say just as a final thought this may not sound political but the more that you can talk about these issues in your own personal life um, I think the better off we'll all be because at the moment you know some quite significant majority of Americans are concerned about climate change and yet some tiny minority of Americans have, regular conversations with people they love. I think the figure is something like 17% have regular conversations with the people they love about the issue. And I think that means that so many of us are carrying around um, this anxiety without understanding that it's being, sh that it's shared by many of the people closest to us and that together in talking about it, we can f start to form um, real sources of comfort at the personal psychological level, but also of power at the political level and um, start thinking about how collectively we can make change through local political action and organizing um, for those representatives who are, you know, working a little more distantly either in the, you know, the state house or, or in DC. Mm -hmm. And I think that that all starts from just conversation and spreading the word because the most important thing right now is for more people to understand the scale and urgency of the crisis. And I think one tool that each of us has in helping that along is just our mouths. We can talk about it all day. Um, and if you're so motivated to do that, you should, because the chances are the person you're talking to is going to feel something like you feel and want to talk about it in something like the same way that you did. That's such an incredibly astute point. And I, I, I really like that you brought that up, that we do all carry this. We all see the same headlines. And, and as I'm listening to you say that, yeah, that's not, it's not a frequent topic of conversation yet. And I think that, again, that's another one of these things that I think you're doing in a really important way is to helping not just give people the passive action of looking at something on a computer screen or reading a book, it's the engagement and talking to their friend and saying, Hey, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And that the issue itself is no longer this, you know, electrified third rail that we're not supposed to touch. If anything, we're supposed to try to walk it. And I, and I appreciate that about the work that you're doing. How do people find you if they want to follow you on social media? Obviously the book is widely available, the uninhabitable earth. How do they find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at, you know, at D Wallace Wells. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's my main social media presence. Yeah. So that's and probably you do the a nice job on it as well. You definitely do a wonderful job on that feed. This is fabulous. This was really interesting and really fantastic. You've given us some, some good tools to use, but also I think that for me, it's heartening to know you're, it feels like you're just starting on this work. You've already made a big footprint. And I think that your work is going to help drive a lot of this progress. It's going to help drive a lot of these conversations. And for that, I'm, I'm excited and I'm happy. And 
really, really proud to have you on the show. And I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.